G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Lee Strobel um, was an investigative, he used to be an investigative journalist um, and he set himself the ambitious task of sinking Christianity uh, once and for all, right? So, investigative journalist, no friend of God or um, Christianity by any means, and he resolved to bend his mind and his training to scrutinise this Christian belief business with a view to taking it apart and showing it up for the fraud that, um, that it really is. Now, in fact, the opposite occurred. <laughs> he examined the evidence, he went into it with all of his powers of reason, he interviewed lots and lots of different people, and he reached the conclusion that he ought, rather, to become a Christian. Didn't quite work out. Uh, And he went on to write very persuasively about why you, O reader, ought to become a Christian as well, books like uh, The Case for Christ um, and and many others, actually, with very similar names, most of them, they're excellent. Um, Anyway, he makes this comment, and I'd like to share it with you by way of introduction. Every other faith system that I studied during my investigation was based on the do plan, In other words, it was necessary for people to do something. For example, use a Tibetan prayer wheel, pay alms and go on pilgrimages, undergo reincarnations, work off karma from past misdeeds, reform their character, to try to somehow earn their way back to God. Despite their best efforts, lots of sincere people just wouldn't make it. Christianity, says Strobel, is unique. It is based on the done plan. Jesus has done for us on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. He's paid the death penalty that we deserve for our rebellion and wrongdoing. So we can become reconciled with God. He says, I didn't have to struggle and strive to try to do the impossible, to make myself worthy. Over and over, the Bible says that Jesus offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift that cannot be earned. It's called grace, amazing grace, unmerited favour. It's available to anyone who receives it in a sincere prayer of repentance, even someone like me. Brothers and sisters, welcome back to to our series on James this morning. Um, We're taking a survey of James, one topic at a time, one week at a time. Um, James has a reputation, I think it's fair to say, and and perhaps if you're reading through, you'd, um, I hope, agree with this, has a reputation for being very much focused on what we do, on what we do or must do or ought to do. And we're going to see more of that today. In some ways, I, I feel like something of a hypocrite preaching on James. You know, I've been spending my, my weeks with my head in that stuff and feel very much the hypocrite precisely because James's message, it highlights huge gaps in my life. He puts his finger on all sorts of areas where I'm not as I ought to be. But before we get to that, to what you ought to do, to how I ought to behave or act and repent and change... I'd like us to grasp this truth firmly. You see, Lee Strobel, he is describing the book of James just as much as he is describing the book of, you know, one of Paul's letters or some of Jesus' sayings. They are all of a piece, folks. 66 books, yes, 
but they are all of a piece. Christianity at every turn is about being saved by what Jesus has done, not being saved by what you go on and do. And I want us to see that um, uh, at the start from the book of James and I'm just going to very briefly paint this picture before we um, pray together and and get into the main topic of the day. Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, blessed is the person who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God has promised. Do you remember that from last week? The crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. So yes, that that verse is, it's a call to persevere, isn't it? It is a call to get on and do, but what is the anchor of our hope in that verse? It is a promise, it's God's promise uh, of, what is it, a crown of life. A little further on, in fact, in the very next verse, it, it paints a contrast for us. We may be on the path to that crown of life, to that destiny of, uh, of life as promised by God, but look here, there's another path. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Now, where does this path lead? If we're on the path to the crown of life, where does this other path lead? Lead. Verse 15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. The two paths. But what's our destiny? Well, here's verse 18, skipping down a little bit. He, God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that He created. I'm just painting a picture here. We are people who have heard a promise, we have received a word from God, He has chosen, He has chosen to give us birth, in some sense already, even into this life that we're heading toward down that path. Our destiny to come, So your future, your destiny, the very direction of your life, Christian, we just need to see, even from James, depends not on what you have done, but on what Christ has done, what God has done, and the fact that that word and that news and that promise has reached your ears and you've set your trust in it. Or in the language of verse 21, let's uh, last little verse here for us to look at, the heart and, and force of Christian living, says James, verse 21, isn't about what you do, All you have to do is believe. Verse 21, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept. But see, the very next verse, having said that, humbly accept the word planted in you, the very next verse, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. <laughs> Anyone who listens to the Word but doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So, let's pray. With that extended preamble introduction, let's pray as we look to tease out faith in action, faith that does, faith in God's saving Word that actually works in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to Your Word to us, perhaps with vivid memories of how we've lived this week, 
along with some regrets and some memories of mistakes. Teach us, please, to hear your word clearly and to heed your word courageously. Father, we've all known people in our lives, uh, some wonderful people, friends who have no faith at all, and yet they do so well. And we've all known people who claim faith, but whose lives don't seem to square with that at all. And perhaps that's been us more often than we'd care to admit. Father, please, this morning, would you teach us how faith and action are supposed to go together in your grand design? Would you grant us, please, humility as we confront whatever that might mean in our daily lives and our lives together? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Skip over to chapter 2 and verse 14 with me. Chapter 2 and verse 14. Like I said, we're taking a survey, so we're not just ploughing through the whole thing. We're picking out particular verses that are on the theme for today. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. Now, I think think James there means you can't show me, can you? Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. I'd just like us to, from this passage, just very briefly try to appreciate the gravity of that last bit that he says there, that very last verse there in verse, uh, what is it, 19. When your faith amounts to little more than empty words, parroted away on Sunday perhaps, like that, uh, that well-to-do bloke who's collared by a beggar and what, is, what does the beggar get from him? He, get, he gets a bunch of empty words, he gets a bag full of well-wishing hot air. If your faith might as well be a sack of nothing for all the difference that it makes in your life, here, here was the sting, verse 19, he's saying the spiritual enemies of God, demons, would give your faith a run for its money because at least they shudder at the thought of God. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Folks, today I feel that there are, there are kind of two people, two kinds of people, two buckets that we could put ourselves in uh, that we need to preach to, that, we need to, that I need to preach to, that we need to kind of evaluate ourselves in. You'll need to decide which bucket you belong in. And to be honest, I hope that some of us move from one bucket to the other um, uh, over the course of the morning. But the, the first bucket, it holds those of us who, you know, take a look at your life and you really do have to wonder about your salvation. You know, I say I have faith, but for all the difference it makes in my life, I've got to ask the question, do I seriously reckon that that kind of faith is going to save me? Is it genuine? That's very much James's question there in verse 14, isn't it? In verse 14, his question is, what good is it, my brothers, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Here's the, here's the punch, can such faith save him? You know, my life doesn't really match up to this faith that I claim. 
See, James's beef isn't about whether or not the Word is good enough, the promises of God are robust enough and sure enough. No, it's just, do I actually believe them? Because if I believe them, then it ought to show. It ought to show so that I can see it, it ought to show so that we can see it. He gives a couple of examples, I'm not going to read them both now. The first one um, is, is Abraham... Um, he's got, Abraham's kind of the believer from the Old Testament, isn't he? Like you think of who's the, who's the, he's kind of the standout believer from the Old Testament and his faith was at work very much in his actions and God looked at Abraham's life and, uh, and he said, Abraham, you are all right by me. You believe me, I can see that, you are in the clear, you are my friend, I am happy with you, I will count you righteous. Um, saving faith at work, you see. But the second example I do just want to dwell on very briefly uh, that James provides here, because my hunch is that we do need to hear this one. Because the lesson with Rahab, the second example, the lesson is saving faith saves sinners, sinners even. It saves people who haven't done what's right, who have stuffed up, who have regrets and carry them every single day of their life. Just, just call to mind for a moment that, I don't know, if you can do this in just a moment, but call to mind for a moment the very worst thing, the thing that from your life that you feel that's the unforgivable, I'm not sure that God can forgive me for that. Can saving faith, can faith in the Word and promises of God in the Lord Jesus even save you, even with that in mind? Well, let's have a look. Verse 25 of chapter 2. Verse 25 of chapter 2, this second example. In the same way, writes James, so just like Abraham, friend of God, beloved by God, you're righteous, Abraham, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, if you want the background for that, I'm afraid you're going to have to read Joshua uh, in the Old Testament. I'm not going to fill in all the blanks now. I think James has given us all the details that we need. Verse 26 is, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, I'm sorry to labour it, folks, but could we just look at those five words in a row? Five words, which you, sinner, which I, as deeply flawed, broken and hurtful person, I think we need these five words, actually. Here they are five words, wasn't Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? They are remarkable words to put together. Oh, sure, yeah, I understand. Abraham, friend of God, his faith in action, I'm happy with you, you're my friend, yes. Rahab the prostitute considered righteous. Righteous, just like Abraham. I am happy with you, Rahab. You're mine, you belong to me, you're with me, you're in the clear with me. Let me put it this way, good deeds don't get God's attention. Good deeds don't save you. Your evil deeds won't land you in hell if you have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of His Gospel. Do you see that in the life of Rahab? James wants to know, is your faith genuine? Is it saving? Because if it is, then it ought to show. It ought to show in your life. You ought to be able to see it. 
Now, would you come with me, please, to, what, to chapter 3, chapter 3, where he teases this out more, and he really puts the heat on in chapter 3. I, I think uh, we go into chapter 3 because it's kind of the stellar example, the beating heart of the issue of faith in action. In James chapter 3, it starts out like a passage designed to strike fear into leaders or would-be leaders... But very rapidly, I think it starts to call to mind for us some of our most bitter memories and our deepest failings and our most regrettable clashes. So, uh, folks, this is the passage that, um, you know, I'm committed to preaching to you because I'm your pastor, because we're preaching on James and so I'm going to, but I preach it knowing that these words are words I need to hear. I preach this bit knowing what I've said this week and how I've used my tongue. Would you come with me? James chapter 3, let's read together, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Here we go. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great fire is set on, uh, is set on fire, a forest rather, is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Let me say, if you've somehow managed to sail through life thus far, without igniting an argument with someone that you cherish, without deeply offending a dear friend with a careless word, without making one of your colleagues feel very small, or even a child, crushing a child, while you boast your way to feeling good and bigger and better and smarter. If you've never seen the pain, even actual tears at times, welling up in the eyes of someone that you love because of words that have flown from your lips. If you have kept your tongue in check, then you're a freak of nature. You are a natural wonder of the world. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this shouldn't be. Can both fresh water and salt flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Brothers and sisters, we, we began today with the two paths, you remember? We began with the, the one path, there are those on the path uh, to death, you know, desire, temptation, sin, death, uh, and then there are those on the path to life. 
faith in the word, humbly accepting the promises of God on their way to the crown of life. Here's the question, which destiny are your words, has your tongue been helping people towards this week? Which future, which path has it been helping them along? Have your words this week had about them the sweet aroma of heaven itself or the acrid stench of hell? Jesus said in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I'm ashamed to think of the things that I've said with my tongue, but they are just the tip of the iceberg, aren't they? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that I've said are just the tip of a terrifying iceberg that lurks beneath in my heart. James recognises that Christians continue to sin. This is Doug Moo, Doug Moo, commenting on, uh, well, verse 2 he has in mind there, we all stumble in many ways. James recognises that Christians continue to sin, so he clearly doesn't expect 100% conformity to the will of God. But how high must the percentage be, asks Doug Moo. How many works are necessary to validate true saving faith? James, of course, gives no answer. But what we can say with confidence is that the claim of anyone who's totally unconcerned to lead a life of obedience to God, their claim to have saving faith must be questioned. Brothers and sisters, this morning, have our words become disconnected from our destiny? Now, I know in in James 3, it's negatively framed, isn't it? It's the bad side, it's the dark side, it's the tongue set on fire by hell sort of side of things. But if my tongue, and it's not just about rude or foul language, if my tongue, if I'm using it to work death instead of life, if you're using it to work death instead of life, may I plead with us, it is time to go back to the roots of our faith, to remember the Word and where that Word is taking us, the path that it has set us on, the the life that it has birthed us into, to remember the life that we've been given and the work that God has done and begun in us and then take steps to change. So if your habit, and here I'm very much pointing at myself, brothers and sisters, if, if your habit is to adopt a tone that starts fires in your household... If your habit is to speak yourself into a storm, what was the the image there of the, the ship being blown around by strong winds? If your habit is to speak yourself into a storm instead of into healing, peaceful, calming waters. If your habit is to inject deadly poison, now you don't even need to raise your voice to do that, do you? then may I humbly suggest it's, it's time for repentance, it's time for saying sorry, it is time to seek forgiveness. And do you know, that, that language of healing and of mending and of repair, um, in a strange way, it actually leads us to our last section. Uh, in fact, the last section of James, it leads to uh, where I want to talk about heavenly words, not hellish words, but heavenly words. Um, now, as we turn to James 5, 
Oh, James 5, the last bit. It's so, there's a few red herrings in there and I wonder, even, if, even as we read through it before, if we kind of got a little distracted uh, by those. But I, I think James 5, the last bit of it, is the flip side of James 3. Hellish words in James 3, heavenly words. Um, he starts out with words of just basic integrity. James chapter 5 and verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear. It's not talking about foul languages, it's talking about oaths actually. Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and you'll know no or you'll be condemned. Now just notice as we read on, um, we usually get hung up on a few things, one of, one of several things. Uh, perhaps we get hung up on what is this anointing about? Uh, we'll read it in just a second. Uh, anointing, you know, the elders go around, they pray over the guy, they anoint him with oil. What's with the oil? I mean that's just weird. Why would you put oil on someone when they're sick? Um, Folks, I think it was just a a cultural expression, a cultural symbol of setting someone apart under the special care of God. It's the prayer, even James says, it's the prayer that's effective. It's not some magic or some medicine, the oil. I think it's a red herring for us. Or we get hung up on why it is that every single prayer or every single elder's prayer doesn't heal every single illness. Um, To which I just point out, that not every single one of Elijah's prayers was got the answer that he wanted either. It's, James is giving us a general statement um, and very often our prayers do align with the will of God and he answers them and people are made well. Um, I don't think it's an always promise, it's a prayer of faith rather than a prayer of arrogance. Anyway, um, let's read from verse uh, 13 now. But just notice how much this is about speaking, about words, about talking how we use our tongue, not for the hellish, but for the heavenly and for repair and mending and life. Verse 13, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If you sin, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And he gives the illustration of Elijah, from the prophet from the Old Testament. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. When I'm in trouble and under pressure, when I'm feeling the heat, when I'm under the pump, I don't think my tongue naturally leads to prayer. I need a heavenly tongue. When I'm happy... Are the praises that spill from my lips praise to God or praise that puffs up myself about what a great job I've done, how well things have gone under my hand? But it is such a beautiful thing, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to be among people who praise the Lord in the good times. Let's be people like that for one another. When the sickness closes, or kind of closes out our view of the sun in our lives... My experience actually in this congregation is that we do pray there and we do pray not just for healing, although of course we pray for that, but we pray for endurance, we pray for perseverance, we pray for acceptance, we pray for one another's faith. I think I do see that amongst us and that is a heavenly way to use our tongues. 
It's interesting that straight after that, James goes for sin and forgiveness. Um, Sickness doesn't mean, in these verses, I think, sickness doesn't mean that you've sinned or that illness is God's punishment necessarily, I suppose it could be, but here is the heavenly community. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I guess you look at this little community that James is describing. Are we a people among whom apology and forgiveness flow so freely because we're a people who love healing and we love life and we love helping one another along with our very tongues? Uh, uh, We love life more than we love pride and saving face. But let's finish with this. We are a people saved by God's truth. The ultimate display of that is that we believe that one another are people saved by God's truth. And so you look at verse 19, James's closing words, my brothers, if one of you should wander away from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. There's a heavenly community. Um, a pastor named Matt Chandler Um, from the US, he once described how God's Word, um, when it's put into action in our churches, just what a heavenly, what a beautiful thing it is, what a wonderful place it makes the church community to be amongst, um, for genuine sinners, not for fake self-righteous people, for genuine sinners, a place where wanderers find heavenly words to draw them back, a place where sinners are reminded of the forgiveness that they have in Christ, a place where we're saved by faith in a word that we are all trying to put into practice and all stumbling along the way in. Uh, so J- Matt Chandler, he puts it like this and we'll, we'll close and then we'll pray. Um, he says, the gospel, the gospel ushered in authenticity, that openness where we all were, uh, about that, that openness about where we all were what we were struggling with and our deep need for Jesus made the church a safe place for people to come. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded from your word this morning that you are always a safe place for us to come because we've heard the word and the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we confess, Father, that too often the company of your people is not the safest place for a sinner to be. And we say that to our shame. Lord God, may we reflect your heart for the lost. Your heart for our brothers and sisters in the way we treat one another, in what we do, and especially with our tongues, with our words. Lord God, take a hold, please, of our home life, of my home life, of our home lives, Change our words, our tongues, our pitch, our tone, all that we do and bend it toward life-giving, toward forgiveness, toward mending and repair, we pray. God in heaven, we need your help in this area. We know that, sure, lots of animals have been tamed, but when we think of our track record with our tongues, it seems beyond us. We really are dependent on a work of your spirit, Father, and so we ask, would you be at work in us, amongst us, even now, even this week, 
for the glory of Jesus in our lives. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.